following sermon is from the Westminster Pulpit, extending the worship ministry of Westminster Presbyterian Church, Lancaster, Pennsylvania. We are a local congregation of the Presbyterian Church in America. Please contact us for permission before reproducing this message in any format. chapter 23. I begin reading at verse 32. Two others who were criminals were led away with Jesus to be put to death with him. And when they came to the place that is called the skull, there they crucified him and the criminals, one on his right and one on his left. And Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And they cast lots to divide his garments. People stood by watching, but the rulers scoffed at him, saying, He saved others. Let him save himself if he is the Christ of God, his chosen one. The soldiers also mocked him, coming up and offering him sour wine and saying, If you are the king of the Jews, save yourself. There was an inscription over him saying, This is the king of the Jews. One of the criminals who were hanged railed at him, saying, Are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. The other rebuked him, saying, Do you not fear God, since you are under the same sentence of condemnation? And we indeed justly, for we are receiving the due reward of our deeds, but this man has done nothing wrong. And he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus said to him, Truly I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. This is God's word. Unless you do all your shopping at thrift shops or flea markets or garage sales, it's probably not often that you can come home with an item knowing the value and the retail price of it and say to your wife or husband or someone in your home, look at this. I got a steal on this. I got it so cheaply. Well, I enjoy watching Antiques Roadshow, I think, for that reason, because there's so few steals in real life. Isn't it great to watch the person that, maybe you don't watch this old folks show, but uh, to watch the person that comes in with a picture, an oil painting. What'd you pay for it? Ten bucks at the garage sale. I liked the frame. I thought maybe I'd use the frame to put a family portrait in. Well, let me tell you what it's worth. $15,000. And the people fall right over backwards. They got a steal. Well, what bargain can possibly compare to a convicted thief who in the process of being criminally executed obtained eternal life with God for free for speaking forth the true and sincere attitude of his heart. It had to be the greatest steal of all time. 
Yes, we know that Calvary had not just one cross, but three. The other Gospels report this, but Luke is the only one that gives the kind of human interest story about those two thieves. Two men who were only feet apart, maybe 20, 30 feet with Jesus between them on the central cross. And they were put to death, not because they were petty shoplifters who picked a piece of fruit from the marketplace or something. To be executed, you had to do something that we would call grand larceny or be a bandit. And they were in pain. They were both dying. And yet, separated by only 20 or 30 feet, as soon as they had both died, you would have to say that the two men were separated by an infinite distance of space from that time onward. You see, because the one man repented, called Jesus his Lord in apparent absolute sincerity, and we believe, received that he was assured of, heaven on the spot. The other man, it doesn't bear telling what he's suffering even today. Hebrews 7 25 tells us that Jesus Christ is able to save to the uttermost, to the farthest, most desperate, most wretched condition, those who come to God by him. And if you would search the Bible from Genesis to Revelation, I don't think you'll find an example more convincing of salvation's power and mercy to reclaim and transform someone than the case of this penitent thief who you might say stole heaven. I want you to notice several things this morning. First is the marvelous sovereignty of God in salvation demonstrated here. The sovereignty of God in salvation. You see, if we would believe Matthew and Mark, and they certainly were being truthful, that earlier, Luke doesn't emphasize it, but Matthew and Mark say both of the thieves were calling things out. Nasty, sarcastic, remarks at Jesus, scoffing at him. But then it must be that one of them became thoughtful and started to consider what he was saying and changed his tune. Now here they were, both of them in the same condition as Jesus, no reason for them to think that he was all that different, but one of them went on in his pride and his inner anger and his twisted mentality and kept heaping abuse on this man next to him where the other one stopped and something changed. You even wonder, where did the anger, where where did all this sarcasm come from? The subject of school bullying is something we hear a lot about today, and I know people who have been subjected to it. It's cruel, and it's hard, and it's destructive in young lives. And I think, I'm not a psychologist, but I try to think, what makes someone bully another young person in school? whether verbally or even physically, what what does that? And I can only understand that there's some kind of pride that actually borders on fear. You have to kind of assert yourself against somebody else to try to prove your own superiority, which you're not very sure of. And maybe the more you kind of beat up on a weaker or different person, eh, you push back your own fear a little bit and think that you've established yourself as some kind of proud or powerful person. 
Maybe that was going on here. I can't psychoanalyze this man. But I would say he's full of the spirit that Romans one twenty one talks about when it says, although humanity in general knew God for who God was, they would not glorify him or love him or give thanks to him. And so their thinking became futile and their foolish hearts were darkened. And so here's a man, an example of this, his foolish heart, full of darkness and interferes and anger and Instead of maybe yelling at God, he yells at the nearest object, another man. I say the sovereignty of God is very strongly demonstrated in this scene as one man was drawn to salvation and the other one was passed by. They both were identical in terms of circumstances, in terms of what Roman justice had to say about them, and yet they were absolutely different in the eyes of God. God sovereignly chose by ways and means that I cannot explain to you nor justify to mysteriously awaken one man out of his cynical mockery and self-anger and self-destruction to what we would call saving faith. And he let the other one go. The other man wasn't caused to be angry by God. He was angry already. And oh, there are people that hear this truth and they say, well, that wasn't very fair. That wasn't fair at all. Why would God rescue one and not the other? That we do not have or pretend to have the answer to. But I say to you, the fair thing would be for God to leave them both alone. And he didn't choose to do that, did he? He chose for reasons maybe we will know one day. But he is God, and I allow him to keep those reasons from us eternally, if he chooses to, to pluck this one and to put in him a seed of saving faith that then began to quickly flower. Because that's what made the difference here. You can't explain it in a human way. Both men, the same in every sense. One responds differently. Why? The Bible says because of the work of the Holy Spirit. Paul in Ephesians said it is by God's grace that we are saved through faith. And even that grace and faith are not from us. It's not of yourself. It's the gift of God. You see, when you've got people who have equal education, same backgrounds, same actions, same intelligence, same opportunities, but they come to the cross of Christ and the cross divides them, what else are you going to say? Jesus predicted this at the end of Matthew 25, his Olivet Discourse. He talked about when he would come to judge the nations and all the nations would be gathered before him and he said that he would separate the people as a shepherd separates sheep from goats and and one group would be on his right and would receive, quote, the kingdom prepared for them from before the creation of the world. To the other group, he couldn't have said anything more opposite. Depart from me, you who are cursed, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. That was gentle, meek, lowly, mild, loving Jesus who said some people are going to depart into a burning place of suffering, separated one way or the other. I remember an experience when my dad asked me to clean the garage when I was a kid. That was one of my jobs. And 
I didn't usually take it on until I was reminded that it was my job. And Dad said, okay, it's time to... I was thinking of this the other day because I was cleaning my own garage and cleaning Dad's garage years ago. And one year it was particularly messy, a lot of dirt, debris all over. There was a workbench there. My dad had been doing something with a file and metal. I didn't even see him do it, but there were a pile of metal filings on the floor along with all the dirt and debris and scraps of paper and, you know, everything that blows in the garage door leaves. So I'm sweeping away, and I had a great big pile, and I realized that about half of the pile was metal filings from Dad's project. And that was my point of childhood when I was a scientist. I was inspired by science and uh, wasn't too advanced in it yet, but I, I had certainly understood something about magnets. Well, my dad had a great big magnet, and I thought, aha, there's a way you can pick up some of this stuff without the dustpan. Sure enough, I got the big magnet from the workbench, passed it over, and the whole thing was full of the metal filings, which I had to then find out they weren't easy to get off the magnet once they were stuck on. But left on the floor was the dust and the dirt and the leaves and the scraps of paper. Well, that's really what God's sovereign work in salvation is. His Holy Spirit is the magnet drawing to God the people of God who he has determined will come and have faith. You can argue with that process and say, I don't believe in magnetism or or whatever you want to say. But that's the only way that anyone who's dead in their trespasses and sins, as the Bible says, is ever going to come if God's Spirit would stir them up and make Christ attractive and draw them to himself. Which one of those people do you think you're like today? Are you someone who's drawn to Christ in any way? Is he attractive to you? Do you desire him? Do you have any kind of trust in him at all as somebody singular, somebody absolutely unique? We believe you have that because God has put that in you. And if you're here today, angry, sullen, upset, you've got a big argument to carry on with God, Might it be that you're someone that's just going to be left where you are for eternity? If you suspect otherwise, and if you love Christ at all or you're drawn to him, it's his spirit that is doing that. John 6, 44 has Jesus say, no one can come to me. No one is able to come to me unless the spirit of God draws him to me. So God's sovereignty is the first thing that's exhibited, certainly, in this text. Secondly, this. The thief who stole heaven, to me, typifies every person, man, woman, or child, everyone whom Jesus came to save. He typifies them. Here is this guy. I'm sure he wasn't very clean. He probably hadn't been shaven in a long time. Rags on him. He'd been in some stinking prison cell. You didn't get really good prison care in those days, I can guarantee you. And he'd been dragged out now and put on this cross, and he was bloody, disreputable, not somebody you would want to sit down and have lunch with, I can assure you. And yet he is the typical one, the trophy, the emblem of the salvation of God on this day that Jesus died. Because he did and said the exact things that we must do and say to know that we belong to God. He did two things, very simple. He repented and he believed. His repentance is in the words that he speaks to his uh, fellow criminal as he reproves him saying, look, 
this man between us has done nothing to deserve death. We're just getting the just reward. I talked about this last week. The whole idea of our guilt and Christ's innocence, his condemnation as an innocent man, and the fact that the way we take a hold of him as our sacrifice is simply to recognize that, that he's innocent and we're absolutely guilty and we're tired of making excuses for that. This man was actually a great theologian here, better theologian than those who teach in many seminaries. When he said, look, here's the innocent one. We're the guilty ones. I take my guilt on myself. I don't impute it to him. That's what real repentance is. But then, too, he's an example of faith in a great way. Repentance and faith, you know, go together in such a way that they merge. They're two sides of the same coin. They have to go together. This man recognized in Jesus someone that he could call Lord And I don't believe, as we understand the use of that term in in that time and century, that that was simply a term of respect. I've found throughout my career, sometimes people find me during the week with a coat and tie on. They say, what are you all dressed up for? Come on, people don't dress up like that today. Well, I do it, whether other people do it or not. But I've found that, you know, you go places, you might be in a store or something, and they say, oh, here's a man with a suit coat on and a tie. He needs some respect. He's not wearing a hoodie, you know. He, he's different. And they say, sir, yes, sir. How can I help you, sir? Well, some people think calling Jesus Lord is just that, you know, kind of a respectful thing. But no, it isn't. It was an address for his office as king and Christ and Messiah. So here's this man looking at another man dying just like him, just as bloody and broken as he was, saying, Christ, appointed one, Messiah, remember me when you come into your kingdom? Is that an extraordinary statement or what? The man was looking past every every circumstantial appearance and saying, I glimpsed something here. I don't know if I understand it, But there's someone to be addressed here as royalty. He's a king. King, please remember me. Wow. He couldn't see his crown. He couldn't see his God. He didn't look like the son of God in any way, shape, or form. And yet this man hoped against hope in such a way that John Calvin wrote about this man in one of his commentaries to say, quote, since the creation of the world, there never was a more striking example of faith. Why would Calvin say that? He said it because this faith had to disbelieve everything that came to its eyes and believe the things that had been claimed about Jesus as the Christ. Few Christians ever honored Christ with better trust than this. Remember me. Simple prayer. He didn't have time for a long discourse. He didn't have time to give his testimony. He didn't have time to get baptized or join a church or anything else. But he prayed a very potent prayer. Remember me when you come to your kingdom, Lord. And so I want to tell you thirdly how this man was the first of many trophies of divine grace that Christ brought home. 
This is totally imaginary, but if you can stretch your thinking to understand that heaven was expecting the return of Christ, the glorified Son, and after his resurrection and his ascension, the angels were stirring with expectation that the great Son of the highest, the prince among them, the highest one besides the Father, was returning to the halls of heaven. And if there are angel sentinels, they were watching. And somebody said, He's coming. Here he comes. Get ready for the great... Oh, wait a minute. Who's that with him? Who is that? There's someone with him. Oh, it must be Moses. It must be a great man. Probably Abraham. Maybe Elijah. Maybe John, his disciple, died and we didn't know. And and Jesus brought that closest disciple back. No, wait a minute. Look at him. He's a wreck. He's dirty. He's a mess. It was this 13th disciple, nameless to us, who Jesus brought back as his first trophy, just as he would bring back to heaven many prodigal sons and prodigal daughters and have the Father put his robe on them and welcome them to the feast. Will you look at what Jesus said in the the economy of words that were possible on the cross. Remember, a lot of talking wasn't easy. You know, your lungs are gasping for every breath. Your weight is pulling down. Just taking a breath is a hard thing. But Jesus managed a sentence to this man. Truly, or in the old King James, verily, verily, truly, truly. That preface means, look, what I'm about to say is very important. Truly, I tell you today, you will be with me in paradise. Today, not sometime, not after you spend eons in some silly fictional notion of purgatory, a non-existent place, not after you make a detour to pay for your sins sufficiently that God is happy with you. Today, right now, immediately, to be absent from this body, Paul later said, is to be what? Present with the Lord as a glorified soul. This week, the Dahl family watched. What a precious thing. Husband of 60-plus years, two sons and a daughter, had a vigil by Grace's bed, and they were there when their mother went home. Absent from the body, present with the Lord. You'll be with me today in paradise, where I am with my Father, the best place anybody can ever imagine being. And what did this man do to claim that? Lord, Christ, remember me. It's so wonderfully simple. Ladies and gentlemen, the gospel is simple. If you've never had a claim upon this Son of God, who died in your place as Savior, you can claim him by saying, Lord, I do believe you came for all the things that the gospel says. You came for me. You died for me. You rose for me. Lord, Christ, remember me, please. That's the one cry that opens the door of heaven. But I want to speak not just to the person that may never have claimed him before. I want to speak to those, and I think there may even be more representatives of this present today, 
people who a long time ago somehow said to Jesus Christ, yes, me too, Lord. But somehow a lot of things have changed since then. I heard a vivid testimony from one of our members in the last couple of weeks. Someone who said, you know, I trusted Christ in the middle of high school and it was just as real for me and as vivid for me as anything could possibly be. And I, I really was sold out. I, I sought to live for Christ. I took everything very seriously. But somehow, from college time onward, everything went on a big slide. And my life went in my direction and was lived my way with every kind of choice being made that was not God's choice. And this individual I thought was interesting said, after, a, after enough years of that, I reached a decision because I'd been in a church that, you know, well, you better behave yourself and you better do things the right way. This person said, I thought I had done enough things my way and lived selfishly long enough that I had crossed the line and God couldn't take me back. I was irredeemable. And I was coming to church and doing the right things and bringing my kids and my wife to church. But then he said, the preachers kept getting to me. Because they kept saying, one preacher after another over years in this church, even when pastors changed, he kept hearing the same thing. There's mercy for you. There's grace for you. There's redemption for you. And one day, in his own way, this man said, Lord, remember me? And Jesus did. The promise of our God is cast in concrete here today. We could remember words from Isaiah 49 that say this, Can a woman forget her nursing child? What an image. You know, if any person in the whole world is not going to forget another person, it's a woman with a a child who she's nursing with her own body. Can a woman forget her nursing child, the Lord says? Yet she might, but I will not forget. Forget you, declares the Lord. And then this wonderful follow-up. Because I have engraved you on the palms of my hands. Isaiah said that hundreds of years before Jesus. What does the gospel tell us? It tells us the instruments by which we were engraved on the literal palms of the hands of the Son of God. And if you will pray, Lord, Lord Christ, Son of the highest, will you remember me? I can promise you, he will, he must, he cannot forget you. He will save even you. Let's pray together. Our Father, Maybe someone here needs to take this with a special seriousness. I don't know what's in that life. Maybe some of that anger and arguing and bitterness and sarcasm and pride that filled that one thief who just kept pouring it on Jesus. We see a lot of angry people around us every day, Lord. Maybe you'll break through that person's anger and selfishness and hard shell and today cause them to say with all sincerity, Lord Jesus Christ, 
Will you remember me when you come to your kingdom? I thank you, Lord, that I don't preach a false gospel because I know you will answer that prayer. To God be the glory. Amen.